Today's episode will be the first in a series on the topic of building design capabilities in organizations. We'll be discussing the challenges and opportunities of bringing UX into the product cycle, organizational change, internal versus external teams, and proving the business value of design. Hope you enjoy. A lot of people are building, you know, in-house teams, but I think often uh, a lot of the in-house teams are becoming part of the problem when they're inside the organization if they're badly managed, uh, rather than solving it for companies. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Each Another, a podcast about designing for people and business. My name is Tom Cunningham. I'm a senior visual designer here with Each Another, and today I'm joined by one of our principal designers, Mr. John Wood. Hi, Tom. How are you doing, John? Not bad, thanks. That's great. We finally have you on the show. <laughs> I had to be dragged, but here I am. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about bringing UX into large organizations. Uh, what, so what does the traditional product cycle look like to you, John? Well, um, I don't think there is one model of it. I think particularly these days, it differs between organizations. So you have a lot of companies which are around these days, um, which are um, designer led. So some of the founders are designers and some of those startups have become quite large companies. Now I can think of a number of examples, but you know, they have design, um, uh, user research and, you know, user centered design and, you know, that consideration of the user and the product cycle baked in. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, I think, you know, they don't really need an awful lot of help from consultancy because they already have integral to their organization and the way they work and the way they think about the world, they have this stuff baked in. But those are also like a tiny minority of companies. Um, most companies fall into two categories outside of that, you know, designer-led or, you know, designer-founded startup. Um, and I think that they're engineering-led companies um, and there are these traditional companies which are um, consensus-led, I would call it, right? So, um, and often you have, you know, both things in the same company as well. You have, you know, you know one part of the company is engineering-led and one part is consensus-led and they're trying to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, so just try and think of some examples of that, you know, or what it means. Um, a consensus-led company is like any kind of traditional enterprise that would work in one-year cycles. So they do their budgets once a year. They decide how they're going to spend money on an annual basis. They strategize once a year. They decide what they're going to do for the next year mm-hmm. once a year. These things often coincide. And once that sort of die is cast, that's it for the year, you know. And if you're going to try and spend money or change direction in the course of the year, it's a big problem. Um, and all these companies are, are also hierarchical. Um, they're essentially, the way I think of them is, is that they're machines which are optimized for one thing. We sell car insurance and home insurance, right? Uh, or whatever, whatever the product might be. And a hierarchy is a machine that's optimized to do one thing well, and usually on that annual cycle. So um, one of the problems with bringing designers or UX in there is it's grit in the machine. It's change halfway through the cycle, or um, it's... Uh, interfering with the way those companies work. The oil in the machine is consensus. Everybody agrees. Mm-hmm. So often when they're trying to build a service or a product or decide what to do, how to spend the budget, what the strategy is for the year, the principal outcome is that everyone involved agrees or somebody involved is powerful enough that they don't care if somebody doesn't agree. Mm-hmm. But it's all about agreement rather than about what the right strategy is for the company. Now, not that they aren't looking at the market and figures and so on, but then it's down to a matter of opinion about what to do about that. And that is the piece that's consensus led. So many uh, of this other category of engineering led companies. So these might be companies where um, 
you know, uh, they've they've built some new piece of software that the market needs. Um, and to get that out the door, some entrepreneur um, has made his first set of hires, and those hires are engineers. And the only people working in the company for the first period of time are probably engineers because they can do the important job of actually shipping running code out the door. Um, so once you arrive into a company like that, it might be at a stage where you know they're now uh, they've not got significant investment. Um, everyone thinks the product is great, um, but to use it um, is another matter. It's terrible. It's terrible in use. But they've captured this market, and they're now in a race, I think, to make their software good enough, um, such that it won't be rejected when some you know fast follower in the market comes along. Learns from all their mistakes, learns what they've done, and builds and you know a better working, better designed, better considered version of what they have, mm-hmm. and then they lose their market position. So you know, once you're trying to bring UX into a large organization, those are the things you're going to consider. You know, the first things: what kind of culture is it? Where do these people come from? You know, is it a traditional insurance company um, that's consensus led? Or uh, it's a software company that's, you know, start off with four engineers, you know, in one room. Mm-hmm. Um, and who are they today? Um, and those are mostly the kinds of organizations that we end up working with. You know, mm-hmm. if you've got a designer-led, designer-founded business, and they're probably doing this reasonably well already. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, the large organizations that have, you know, it's kind of like trying to move a large tanker as well. So yeah. you're talking about that year-long a set of goals and exactly. it's it's not as easy for them to kind of pivot and change strategy mid-year yeah it's not and in fact um you know if you think about some of the reactions you've had when you suggested you know changes direction uh, in the course of some of our work it makes a lot of sense when you consider it they're consensus led mm-hmm. you know uh, the reaction is pretty much like an incredulous look and go but we agreed this last mm-hmm. you know last month or we agreed two months ago that we do this now we have to get everyone to agree again so it's like it's an uphill struggle mm-hmm. for them to change things quickly um, or to change things locally, right? Uh, they have huge problems with delegating um, decision-making power down to small groups, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, I know we're going to talk also about, like, you know, what a good process or a good team look like. What do these uh, designer-led startups or, or you know, larger companies look like now? Mm-hmm. Well, they look radically different in this, you know, large hierarchical um, consensus-led company. So in these companies, when you try and introduce this stuff, you know, you, you're you're uh, breaking the agreement, you're breaking the contract, you're trying to do something without everybody on board. Mm-hmm. And that's the major resistance to change, you know, the major resistance to UX or design-led or design thinking of any sort mm-hmm. in these organizations. Well, on the point of UX, so obviously a lot of more, a lot more companies and organizations are starting to build their own, their own in-house UX yeah. teams. Yeah. Um, so where does the UX fit into it, like these types of systems, or you know, can it? What problems are they trying? To, can they solve, or yeah. can they actually solve those problems? They can solve those problems. They've got a lot to bring to those companies, and mostly because um, in most industries the pace of business is changing radically. So um, and this will this will impact every industry, but you know, some more than others at first, right? So uh, if you think about how quick it is now to conceive of code and ship a piece of software on the internet. Um, you've removed some of the old industrial age processes out of it. Software no longer has to be written, burned onto CD or disk, mm-hmm. put into a box, mm-hmm. stored in a warehouse, shipped into a retail you know, uh, unit and then sold you know, as box software or sold over the phone. Um, you know, so when you take all of that stuff out of it and you've got delivery, which uh, is not only quicker, but also continuous. You know, it's actually possible now to, you know, continuously improve and ship 
software. You know, some of the teams we've worked with are shipping, you know, two or three times a week. Um, once you have that kind of environment, you just can't cut it anymore in this very, you know, slow moving annual cycle of strategizing and budget spending. So what UX can offer is, is two things really. And you can see this in the job titles that many of these in-house teams are using now. Product manager. So the person who is responsible for product discovery, for discovering what the fit of the product is to the market and responding to the market, understanding what you know users and customers, paying customers need, and making sure that the team are solving the right problems, defining what the team needs to be doing. The no guy, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or the yes guy. So, uh, and, and uh, you know, also product design, um, you know, actually taking user needs, um, taking business requirements and so on, integrating those and coming up with a product or service that works for people, you know, at every level. And finally, there's user research. There's kind of like the, uh, you know, the, the sense organs of, of the company, really, um, uh, small-scale user research, long-term user research, analyzing the numbers, all of these things, and integrating that into some sensible picture that can be used to drive company strategy. So um, to think of UX or design, as many people do, as UI design at best, mm -hmm. or decoration, you know, at worst, is um, really to undervalue what those kinds of skills can bring to a company, particularly when your company is, you know, maybe facing, you know, disruption now or in a number of years. Maybe they're looking at, you know, an erosion of market share already. Maybe not, but, you know, it's they can see it coming down the road. Um, so a lot of people are building, you know, in-house teams. But I think often uh, a lot of the in-house teams are becoming part of the problem when they're inside the organization mm -hmm. if they're badly managed. Um, uh, rather than solving it for companies. So I think you know UX, product management, product design, user research, they can help these companies with digital transformation and help them to respond to this faster paced marketplace. Um, but they can't do it when they're mired in the old engineering led or consensus led cultures that uh, these companies often work with. Absolutely. Um, so one of the points there you made about, you know, large organizations bringing in in-house teams and then using them effectively. Yeah. One thing I found is that those teams that are are hired in, especially if it's an engineer-led company, they're just getting they're jumping onto a into a moving treadmill, yeah. just into an agile cycle. So they're kind of mired in production work and don't always have the opportunity to step back and look at yeah. the kind of strategic view. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly the case, and that's that's one of the downsides of what I've called the engineering-led culture in companies. So if you think about agile, agile is a response by engineers to. The consensus-led culture that we talked about earlier, when that consensus-led culture spent weeks, months, sometimes years, talking to each other, trying to find agreement, um, creating huge documentation about a project to build, um, and then constantly changing their minds as you know things shifted thereafter, that was incredibly frustrating for engineers. Agile is best understood as a response of the engineer side of the brain mm -hmm. in a company to the consensus-led you know, agreement-led um, side of the brain in these kinds of companies. And um, there is a, a huge problem uh, when you put a UX team in there because uh, there's a different mindset required for engineering um, than there is for design. And design does need a little bit of time mm -hmm. um, up front to make everything coherent. So if you jump into a design um, or engineering project in an agile environment and you just start producing things, the problem is it's incoherent, mm -hmm. right? Often incoherent. Um, you know, in sprint three, you come up with a far, far better solution 
than you had for the same problem in sprint one. Now an engineer would shrug and say, well, you just refactor later, don't you? But the problem is you're building up a huge amount of debt. Engineers build up technical debt over time when they just make things, you know, and just ship things. Eventually you go and have a look at their servers and all the architects standing around the server scratching their head going, you know, um, oh, this is terrible. It's an incoherent mess, you know. It's three different stacks. It's, you know, built this way, then built that way. None of the efficiency of it works. We can't deliver this capability or that capability. Mm -hmm. That is, um, uh, in large part, uh, a consequence of doing without planning and thinking sufficiently. Mm -hmm. You get exactly the same result when you just design and ship UI all the time. You build up user debt. Mm -hmm. You build up um, a user experience, which from one end to the other um, is incoherent does things different ways in different places. And you know it becomes extremely frustrating. Every little interaction that the user takes um, is a tax on their time and their patience. Mm -hmm. And if it isn't working well from one end to the other, if you haven't had time to consider the shape of the whole thing, as well as the individual parts, then you know that's not a good thing. So you do need some time up front. Um, there is a lot of resistance in teams that are working on Agile because it's almost become like a religious cult in some companies. This you know cult, cult of, of Agile. Yeah. Yeah, cult of yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can't be found thinking about something in a corner. You can't be found producing any documents because you're back to the bad old days of big documentation up front, armies of business analysts sitting in meetings for months trying to figure out what on earth it is that they want. Um, but it's not true, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a very extreme view. Mm -hmm. um, you need some kind of framework that's coherent before you can do individual pieces of design. They have to fit into some overall scheme. But I think we're seeing this in a lot of companies now who are focusing on design systems. Um, sometimes, you know, we talk about this in terms of pattern libraries, other times in terms of design systems. But the problem that that's solving for companies is when you have managed to break the work up into small chunks that can be done quickly and efficiently, um, shipped, measured, responded to. Um, once you've got that kind of work going on, um, fragmenting all of the work and the teams into small pieces brings that problem you've mentioned You know, in the agile environment where there might not be coherence across the product or across the product suite. And the way that people are trying to address that now are these systems which glue everything together, which you know make everything coherent by centralizing uh, you know, the, the framework for the design. Yeah. Well, so something, you know, it's a model that you can then you know, change over time rather than you know, make up from whole cloth every time someone has a problem. Yeah, I think uh, Spotify, I think you told me before, Spotify have a, a team that they actually called Glue. The Glue team, team. Yeah. Glue team. Yeah, and that's, sure. their, that's yeah. their role to make sure that every, that's yeah. consistent. Yeah. And they're not alone. You know, it's, it's, it's a common approach because all of these companies are, are encountering a problem now. So, um, and they're encountering it as they scale. So if you have you know, um, uh, a couple of founders, um, you know, uh, 10 engineers and two designers, all sitting in the same space, mm -hmm. then um, a lot of those problems can be, uh, you know, they can be resolved around a whiteboard in a few minutes. They can be resolved in a conversation, you know, over a coffee. Mm -hmm. But as you scale into dozens and then hundreds of engineers, possibly in multiple locations, that personal contact no longer works. The company outgrows the ability to build and ship something coherent unless it's organized. Mm -hmm. um, so they're having to um, go some way down the road towards, you know, hierarchy again. Hierarchy is necessary. The question is how much of it and um, how open is it to you know adaptation and change? Mm. I think one of the key things for a successful company, a successful team is a strong culture. Yeah. And obviously that's that's difficult, especially if your, if your company kind of explodes, you know, if you scale up and grow really yeah. quickly. Um, so how important do you think culture is and you know what is culture? 
culture is the store of responses or ways of thinking about things or seeing things that organizations or societies have, you know. So, you know, the culture of a country is, you know, the sum of all of the things about it, you know, the language, the art, um, the way people look at life, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing in an organization. It's it's habit. It's a way of, a way of thinking. Um, and it's important because when people are faced with a problem uh, in work uh, that they have to solve, then they turn to culture usually for the answer. You know, mm -hmm. what have I seen done before? Mm -hmm. What's acceptable? What will I get praised for and what will I get punished for? Yeah. So all of those things shape behavior. Um, culture is a slippery thing because it can't be engineered, in my opinion. It emerges yeah. and it emerges through example. You know, so the habits that are set when you've got that company with the two founders, the 10 engineers and the two designers sitting in one space, that persists and it's really difficult to change. Mm -hmm. So it's like anything where, you know, if you have like bad habits, they become ingrained, mm -hmm. they become part of the culture. Um, and, you know, things like lack of accountability or scapegoating people or trying to second guess the boss, you know, all these kinds of things that become ingrained in cultures. And, and you know, they're easy to understand. It's perfectly rational behavior because if every time, you know, I say a particular thing in a meeting, I get slapped down and, you know, sooner or later, I'm either going to be fired or I'm going to stop saying it, yeah. you know? So the, the organization teaches you how to behave, teaches you what's valued, mm -hmm. um, teaches you what you can and can't do. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, it's essential for companies who are facing disruption, a faster paced, different marketplace, possible loss of market share, you know, downsizing all these, you know, uh, you know, terrible consequences if they don't get things right. Yeah. Um, and their culture is probably coming from a different time and a different place where different things led to success and will lead to success in the future. So that is a huge barrier mm -hmm. to them if it's the wrong kind of culture. Actually, that's, you know, when you think about integrating UX for the first time into a company which has got, you know, 80% of people who work on consensus building through meetings and 20% of people who just want to ship code and everything else is some kind of nonsense that gets in the way. Mm -hmm. If you have that kind of a, a culture and bringing someone in who says, let's all get together around a whiteboard and use some sticky notes to figure out what the customer needs, you know, um, you know, culturally, this looks like suicide. Shock, <laughs> you know, it's, there's there's a definite culture shock, yeah. right? Um, and everyone is looking at each other, thinking, um, "Is this going to get me fired or uh, sidelined, or am I looking foolish at the moment? Do I look like I'm not a winner? I'm not a decision maker. Do I look weak? Um, do I look foolish? You know, all those kinds of things are crossing people's minds. So yeah, culture can be a real buyer, you know, uh, and and a real competitive advantage if you have the right culture. Yeah, I think a lot of companies that put forward culture as a, as a key benefit of the, of, of the company they're coming into, it seems like it's often framed around like beanbags and, you know, and uh, take as many holidays as you want to at the year, but no one actually takes them because if you take them, you're seen to be, oh, you need to take a holiday. But there's a very strong cultural message there, isn't it? It's just it's not the one that they think that they're sending. They're, they're sending the message that, you know, we're full of shit, mm -hmm. essentially. So yeah, yeah. it's, you know... Um, cupcakes for everyone, yeah, but if you take yeah. a bite, what are yeah, you doing eating the cupcake? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, the sprinkles are all amphetamines to yeah. make you work longer. Um, no, it's uh, people. People have a very strong sense of natural justice, and they got a very strong sense of what's authentic and true or not. Mm -hmm. um, designers, engineers, business people. I find it individually, for the most part, you know, they're smart, they're hardworking. Um, uh, it's when you join people together in groups and systems, mm -hmm. that's where the problem comes in, and that's where culture is important, because the culture is really the operating system of the group. Yeah, something to unify them all. Exactly. So, you know, you can have, you know, uh, 
you know, a dozen of the smartest, most hardworking people you can find on the planet, all in one group, all working on one problem in the same place at the same time, and the culture can completely handicap them. So, um, yeah, that you know, it, it can be as much of a detriment as a as a benefit. Yeah. Okay, so hiring and, and building a team is obviously a challenge for a lot of companies, especially yeah. when everyone's looking at the market. You think they might think they're they're the only ones doing it, but there's a sea of UX designers who are trying to, who are getting hoovered up yeah. by all these different uh, these different companies. Yeah. Um, what do you think are the main challenges for someone who who comes into an organization and tries to build hire and build a UX team? Well, there's the supply problem first. Well, there aren't enough UX designers to go around, and more specifically, I think a lot of salary surveys and other work done by various organizations have shown that it's not just that there aren't enough UX designers to go around or product designers or product managers or whichever um, job title you'd like to use. Um, it's that there aren't enough with the right kind of experience mm. or the right amount of experience. Um, Anyone can put UX in their title as exactly. well. And they do, you yeah. know. So, um, and there, there's the consequences of this, there's a number of consequences. First of all, there's um, wage inflation, which is great if you're a UX designer at the moment. It's quite easy to move jobs and it's quite easy to get a well-paid job. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I think that this is something that's going to correct over time, right? The colleges um, and private organizations like General Assembly um, or... Uh, well, there are a number of places which are, you know, privately training people like Center Center that John yep. School is set up in Chattanooga, these kinds of places, essentially starting to compete with the colleges and doing a better, faster job at turning out people who are more industry ready than the colleges. Mm. Even even with that, you know, the colleges are, you know, catching up and there are sort of post practice, postgraduate programs which can do a reasonable job of turning out someone, you know, who can um who can work well in these kinds of roles. Mm-hmm. But there just aren't enough of them and they aren't being made fast enough. And even when they come off a general assembly course or out of a master's program in some college, um, they're still, you know, maybe two or three years away from being like genuinely useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's the number one problem. You know, if you're a hiring manager sitting there and you, you know, look at, you know, a requirement for say um, a UX team with a strength of 12 or 15 people, you know, designers and other roles, where are they going to come from? And moreover, the more companies who get on the bandwagon and decide that they need an internal team, where are they going to get them? Mm-hmm. There just aren't enough of them. And, you know, that is a supply problem, which will correct in time. And there'll be a wage correction and so on. So I think there are an awful lot of people at the moment who are in jobs um, where they are not quite senior enough or having mm-hmm. the right kinds of experience, but they do have a lot of responsibility. Now, that's great for them. You know, they're getting a great great paycheck. They've got an amazing opportunity and some percentage of them will rise to the challenge. They'll learn, they'll swim and everything will be fantastic. Yeah, they can get a night's sleep, right? So, uh, but others others will probably struggle. So I, I think it's a fantastic time to be a designer mm-hmm. of any sort uh, at the moment and almost any industry. In software, it's an amazing time to be whatever you'd like to call it, UX designer, let's say. Mm. Um, uh, but there will be a correction, you know, yeah. in a number of years. Supply will meet demand. Wages will fall. There will be enough people to go around. Um, people will have figured out how to do this, you know. Um, so it's kind of a boom. Yeah. Uh, it's a bubble of sorts, and it will it will adjust later on. Yeah. Okay. But, but that's, that's definitely a huge challenge that people have at the moment, finding the right people with the right experience to staff them. And there aren't enough to go around all the companies who want one. Yeah. And it's keeping the people as well. I think I kind of think of uh, there's all there's a kind of this kind of design tourism yes. where like, people go and they'll stay for a couple of months and, and then yeah. they'll go on and have a look at the next the next location. Absolutely. There's there's also another challenge, you know, especially in Ireland, um, but I'm sure this is true in other countries as well. 
where if you have these um, multinationals, if you have LinkedIn and Facebook and Google and Twitter and all these companies in your city, as we do here in Dublin, it's um, it's extremely difficult to compete because they can offer um, you know benefits and salary packages which have no bearing on local market conditions. They're you know have a bearing yeah. on the billions, you know, the many many billions that these companies make worldwide. Um, so you know that's you're competing with people that you actually can't compete with in terms of salary and benefits. So mm -hmm. if you are a UX manager trying to hire someone into a company that traditionally didn't have designers. Um, doesn't really have a culture of knowing how to integrate them into the work, the problem solving, the decision making of the company. Um, uh, even if you can pay them well enough, you know, there's a huge challenge in getting them to stay yeah. and getting them to really stay long enough and um, integrate well enough that they can make a difference to your business. Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of green grass around and a lot of the, the fear of missing out. Um, yeah. I think the, the point you made on kind of a lot of companies then because they need a vast number of designers yeah. that they're bringing in a lot of a lot more junior designers and you mentioned obviously people possibly yeah. being out of their depth at certain stages sure. so like one of the things that we do um, as mm -hmm. obviously we've got we, we've got designers of different levels and we, yeah. I think one of the things that we do well is the mentorship program that we do mm -hmm. I yeah. think that's key to, to bringing in younger Absolutely. younger designers and bring them through i think yeah. everyone grows I think the obviously junior designers will learn from senior de designers yeah. and and senior designers and principals will learn from themselves yeah. you know from the from the the people that they're working with and also more about themselves and and become better leaders as a I, I think that's absolutely key because you know i i can't remember where i read it but i did read somewhere that one of the main reasons that designers leave companies is insufficient access to senior people mm. so that they can actually grow in their career and that makes complete sense to me if if i were you know if i were a young designer um you know uh, a couple of years just um out of graduation and trying to really learn my trade and try to build a career build build enough experience to get the job i really want or to find out even what i'm interested in then learning is the most important thing to me i think it trumps everything as long as you know some of the basics are taken care of as long as your salary and your benefits are good enough you don't feel that you are um you know doing poorly relative to other people yeah. you know because i think it's relative you know mm -hmm. um and as long as you are you know sort of satisfied on all the basics of the job the number one thing after that is do i feel i'm growing and learning and if you aren't you, you know you owe it to yourself to leave um, and I think that's why we felt that the, the mentoring program was so important, mm -hmm. that um, if we have to compete with these larger companies, the most important thing, the most important step or investment we could make was in the time of the senior people who have seen a lot of things, done a lot of things, and can actually not short circuit particularly, but certainly help people through those learning experiences. You know, oh, the reason this decision was made was this. This is how you do this. This is what I would have said to this person. Mm -hmm. Actually, investing time in those people's careers pays dividends. Yeah, um, I think it's a win-win situation. You know, I think well, all the feedback we're getting so far on the program is that you know the less experienced designers who are taking part in it are getting an awful lot from it. They mm -hmm. really do feel it is building their career and mm -hmm. they're learning a lot. Um, and I think you know, as a company, we're certainly getting a lot from it. Yeah. I you know, I don't know if it's solely responsible, but like you know, I don't think I could ask for sort of a more engaged enthusiastic energetic team yeah. um that we have you know uh so um it seems to really be paying dividends Absolutely. and I, I you know i don't i never regret any time i spend on it honestly and some of those points you made there are actually the reason why how this podcast came about because yeah. i was thinking i remember having conversations with people like yourself and have conversations yeah. with lara with you know yeah. brian heron and everyone else in the team and i'd be like god that's so like if I didn't sit down at lunch and said that to you, I wouldn't have that knowledge. And there's just so much of it within the team. And yeah. so that's what yeah. this podcast actually started off 
as an internal podcast where we talk about projects That's and right. kind of yeah. so we could share within the team and then obviously uh, it's always been a challenge for us is that, that you know we do learn a lot um in the course of, because we're exposed to so many different problems in so many different industries yes um there is huge amount of knowledge and um i you know i'd agree with you we, we've you know we've probably lost a lot of stuff over the years um relearn stuff that we didn't need to relearn so you know i think definitely recording this stuff or you know doing a better job yeah. at talking about it writing it down sharing it um it's it's plugging leaks really you know when you think about it uh, uh yeah it's absolutely essential and just on that point then you were mentioning about uh you know the the fact that we've seen so many different industries that th- th- the nature of our work yeah um Obviously, we work a lot with with, with in-house teams. Mm-hmm. So we're we're coming in as an external team, working yeah, with yeah. an in-house team, yeah. helping them build their capability. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, that's a real challenge, you know. I mean, like, as I said earlier, you will have lots of different cultures, different you know setups within companies, different problems, people at different stages as well, mm-hmm. um, in terms of their thinking about any of this. So um, there's a there's a very large degree to which you have to see what you find before you decide what to do. But there are a few general principles I think that are absolutely essential to making this work, um, which you see even some of the recent projects that we've done. But I think have been, you know, things that we've known here and enshrined in the way we work for a long time. So the first thing is um, form a single team. You know, if we're working, if we're you know principally the staff on a project building a service or a product then there will always be some clients, even if they're, you know, uh, sort of high level business stakeholders, even if they aren't getting their hands particularly dirty in the project, we always form a single team, mm-hmm. right? So it's our guys and your guys, we work together. Um, and I think if you don't do that, then you risk doing something that's a sideshow, that's mm-hmm. off to the side. Uh, you know, you're really outsourcing something. It's like shipping it off and having it delivered, you know, a few weeks later. Mm-hmm. If you don't actually work together closely, going on site often, interacting regularly with these people, then they don't learn, you don't learn, and the, the whole project is poorer for it. Um, so I think that that's important. And if we're going in, you know, on long term to work with an internal UX team, I think it's incumbent on us always to integrate completely with them. Yeah. So um, I remember talking to one of our guys here recently and was asking about what they thought about their first time on site with a client for an extended period of time. And um, this designer said, we use the word we a lot, you know, mm-hmm. um, we need to do this, you know, our goal is to ship this by next week. So we've it's been, even, we've been the each and we've team been and, and the client yeah. talking as if, um, not just talking as if, but acting um, as if this was our company and our problem, mm-hmm. which actually is, mm-hmm. if you don't integrate that fully with the client, with the, pl- the problem that you're trying to solve for them, then you're doing them, you know, a sort of grave disservice, mm-hmm. I feel. Um, you're, they're not going to learn as much. They're not going to get the most out of the interaction. The old agency model was that someone would come along and ask for some creative, right? Um, they would ship some brief or problem off and X amount of time later, the answer would arrive. Somebody would whip the cloth off it, you know, say, ta-da, and then they would like it or hate it, yeah. right? And you'd live or die on that. And that not only did that not work for the client, I feel, you know, and um, they were spending a lot of money for a very uncertain outcome. I think it doesn't work for the agencies. I think it's a disaster. Um, Unless you are completely integrated, building capability inside these organizations, helping them learn, almost making yourself redundant, you know, Mm -hmm. and as much as they're learning to do what you can do as well, Mm -hmm. then they're not really getting their money's worth. And um, I don't feel in the long run that we are kind of making ourselves redundant. I think that what happens 
is that rising tide floats both boats, you know? Yeah. So the relationship between us and the client then um, is a more interesting one in which we can be engaged in more strategic work um, no longer sitting there saying, no, this is the way to organize this workshop or here's how to organize your drawings or I wouldn't have designed it that way anyway. Yeah. You're sitting down um, talking about, you know, uh, product or service strategy or where it might be in a few years yeah. and you're adding a higher level value and they're also now built um, built up to the level of capability where they can engage in this work on the same terms. Yeah. So to me, it's a longer term game. You know, it looks like you're, you know, giving the farm away and as much as you're sharing all your secrets and documents and methods and so on. But I just think that that's really short-sighted, you know, give them everything, give them the best of what you have, make them as good as you are. And then you can have a far more interesting client engagement in the long term. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it that way, I mean, it's almost like an open source industry that we're in. Like yeah. everyone, this, everyone is so keen to share knowledge. Yeah. Just all those, all the methods and all are, are out there if you had the time to yeah. go through them all. There's no such thing as, yeah. you know, a secret sauce in the design center. It's nonsense, you know, I mean, the way we work um, and the things we do and how we think about them. I mean, these these were principles established in the 1920s, you know, as theater designers um, started to put together industrial design and think about manufacturing business as a design business for the first time, you know. Um, you know, you go and look at something like, you know, The Measure of Man, which is a sort of a, a book of, you know, the measurements of the average width of the American ass or, you know, how much oil space you need on a bus to actually move down and all these physical yeah. problems. Those are the first personas, you know, those are those are models of the users, right? Mm. Um, now we're thinking about mental models of the users, how they think, how they solve problems, you know, when they're engaging with software or interacting with it, but it's the same thing. Mm. It's the same approach. I mean, it's constantly renamed, you know, usability engineering, um, user experience design, content strategy, product design, product management. Mm. They're all at heart the same approach to problem solving. It's small teams moving quickly, collaboratively, um, cross-disciplinary, working um, with closely with the users so you're getting instant or as close to instant as you can feedback about what it is that you're making for them. That's all it is really, you know, so there is no secret sauce. It's nothing to hide, um, but it does take more than reading a few books to do it well. Absolutely, yeah. 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 So we're talking about external teams there yeah. a lot, quite often time. That's, that's us in that yeah. role. Um, so what value do you think that brings to an in-house team? I think the number one value, well, there are a lot of things, um, and we, we've already spoken about some of those, mm -hmm. um, you know, experience and so on, but I think the number one thing it brings is it brings perspective um, and an outside perspective that is respected in the organization often more than the internal team would be. And this is, I find, really frustrating for people who work internally, mm -hmm. but I've encountered it a lot, actually. Um, I remember one particular client engagement from many years ago where um, I did some work, some research for a company in the UK and um, delivered a report. It was well-received. It was a good piece of work, I thought. Um, and then their, their sort of UX person, their internal UX person came up to me afterwards, obviously really annoyed and said, I've been telling them this for two years. You know, you come in and like after a couple of weeks, they're going to change this and that and the other, you know, on the foot of what you said. And I, you know, that's, that's the part of external perspective. And it, it points two ways. It points to the kind of the benefits of mm. being an external team, mm. but it also points to the difficulties of being an internal team because once you go in-house, you are now part of the furniture. You're part of the email trails. You're part of the budget considerations. You're part of the politics. You're so mired in the problem that even if you correctly identify what the answer is for the company, trying to get that done, trying to get listened to, 
is as difficult as it is for anyone else to change these big hierarchical consensus driven or engineering led organizations. Mm. Um, when they go to someone like us and ask us to come in and have a look at it, I think that's a positive thing, um, both for the internal and external team, because what it does is it signals that the executive are ready to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they don't know what the answer is, even if they don't like some of the answer, they are at least comfortable with the fact that there's a problem that needs to be addressed and they're willing to sit down and listen. So when that happens and, you know, we come in and, you know, often arrive at conclusions that other people and say, oh, well, I knew that, you know, it's kind of, that's not the point. The point is that trying to change something from the inside is really difficult. Um, it was, I was reading something recently by uh, Jeff Gotthelf, who is uh, the Lean UX guy. And he's written this a really excellent book, Sense and Respond. And he and, and other books, Lean UX among them, but he was he was talking about a previous role that he had internally in a company where he was trying to be part of one of these internal design studios to drive change and innovation from inside. And he found it was so difficult to do that he left and became a consultant because the only way to actually drive change in large organizations, often from the outside, mm-hmm. you cannot do it from the inside. Not that it can't be done, yeah. but I think it's, you know, orders of magnitude more difficult. Yeah. We don't have, we have, when we come in, we don't have the agenda where I need to be, choose my words carefully. We can be a bit more honest and clear and direct about what's, what the problems are. What is particularly me. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, um, yeah. So no, definitely. I think, you know, you can say things that can't be said, but everyone wishes someone would say, Mm. um, you can face down, um, CEOs who, um, have a little bit of founder syndrome or whatever. You can actually, um, you know, do something that isn't really going to put your job on the line and, and, and to the same extent that it would be if you depended on all of these people around you here. But it's right for the company. It's what they need it's to do. It's right for the company. Exactly. Hard truths. Hard truths. Exactly. Yeah. That's great. Thanks very much for your time today, John. Yeah. Well, it was great talking to you, Tom. So, uh, yeah, sorry it took so long to drag me onto the podcast. We'll get you back again. Yeah. Most Thanks definitely. very much. For more insights, go to our website, eachandother.com. Um, John, where can people find you on Twitter and stuff? Well, Twitter, uh, that's that's really the only place I spend much time on social media anymore. Um, you can get me at Cogfric, that's C-O-G-F-R-I-C, on Twitter. Um, and when I finally get around to it, possibly on each and other blog as well, though that's a long time coming. Excellent. And Cogfric, that's Cognitive Friction, is it? Cognitive Friction, yeah. So that's, <laughs> uh, yeah. Excellent. Okay. Thanks very much. All right. Till next time.